Hello, welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on AmericaOutloud.com and also on iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, 34-year law enforcement veteran, the author of several books, including A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. I'm also the founder of The Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, a nationwide charity. This show is dedicated to the men and women of the law enforcement community, to their mental, physical, spiritual well-being. And every, uh, every show, we concentrate on a certain aspect about that particular, uh, those topics. So before we uh, bring my fascinating guest in, because you know I always have a great guest, let's talk about <clears throat> our reality check. The reality check that we do here is where we eulogize the law enforcement officers who made the ultimate sacrifice since our last show. And unfortunately, this week I have four names to read. The first is Trooper Joel Pop of the Michigan State Police. Trooper Joel Pop was struck and killed by a vehicle while assisting with a DUI investigation on uh, northbound I-75 near Birch Run at about 7:10 p.m. He was standing outside of his vehicle when another motorist struck him and two patrol cars. Trooper Pop was transported to medical center where he succumbed to his injuries. The 81-year-old driver sustained serious injuries as well. Trooper Pop had served with the Michigan State Police for four years, was assigned to the Tri-City Post. He is survived by his wife, daughter, parents, and two brothers. Trooper Joel Pop, Michigan State Police. End of watch, Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. The next is Trooper Jimmy Seneskar of the um, Georgia State Patrol in Georgia. Trooper Ginny Seneskar was killed in a single vehicle crash uh, attempting to stop a fleeing motorcycle on Interstate 85 at 5.39 p.m. While pursuing a motorcycle for a traffic violation, Trooper Seneskar lost control of his patrol vehicle near Old Peachtree Road in Atlanta. His vehicle left the road and struck an embankment. He was transported to the hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. Trooper Seneskar served with the Georgia State Patrol for one year and assigned to Post 9 Marietta. He previously served with the Atlanta Police Department for two years. He is survived by his wife, excuse me, by his parents and fiance. Trooper Jimmy Seneskar, Georgia State Patrol, end of watch, Sunday, January 28th, 2024. The next is Police Officer Michael Kane Maxheimer of the Shannon Hills Police Department in Arkansas. Police Officer Kane Maxheimer suffered a medical emergency after an incident with two dogs that had attacked him. At 7.10 a.m. on December 28th, excuse me, December 18th, 2023, Officer Maxheimer helped a disabled motorist and pushed a vehicle out of the roadway. By 7.40 a.m., he was sent on a vicious animal complaint. When one of the German shepherds charged him, he was preparing to shoot the dog, but the strays ran into the woods. Officer Maxheimer returned to the department after 8 a.m. complaint of nausea and chest pains. He was admitted to the, uh, to the hospital where he passed away the following day. Officer Maxheimer served with the Shannon Hills Police for three years. 
Officer Michael Kane Maxheimer, Shannon Hills Police Department, Arkansas. End of watch, uh, Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. And the next is Lieutenant David J. McShane of the uh, New York State Environmental Cons Conservation Police Department. Lieutenant David McShane died as the result of cancer that developed following his assignment to the search and recovery efforts at the World Trade Center um, following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Lieutenant McShane has served with the New York State Environmental Cons Conservation Police for 22 years. He is survived by his wife and children and mother. Lieutenant David J. McShane, New York State Environmental Conservation Police, New York. End of watch Monday, January 22nd, 2024. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving and protecting their, their uh, cities and their communities. Now, I want to talk about, uh, about the, the number of police officers who were shot last year. Um, this number is absolutely out of control. 378 police officers shot in the line of duty in 2023. That is an outrageous number. And the only reason that we don't, didn't have more deaths relating to those shootings is because officers are, are protecting themselves by wearing ballistic vests and body armor. And the, the medical technology that is now available today has saved many lives. But the attacks continue. And, um, and not only the attacks physical, but of course we all know that, uh, that, that law enforcement is facing a, um, an epidemic of emotional issues and post-traumatic stress issues. So that is our reality check. The danger is there every single day that you're on duty and even when you are off duty. So um, I want to tell you about my guest. I have a fantastic guest waiting for us that uh, I'm going to bring him in in just a minute. Let me read his bio. Lieutenant Brian J. Murphy, retired, served with the Oak Creek, Wisconsin Police Department for 22 years. Lieutenant Murphy served as part of the OCPD Emergency Response Unit from 1992 to 2009. In this capacity, he served as a team leader, an entry team leader, and an explosives breacher. He served with, a, the, with additional agencies throughout his law enforcement career, including the Jefferson County Wisconsin Sheriff's Office, United Nations Security Service, and the U.S. Marine Corps. He was honored with the Congressional Badge of Bravery and the Wisconsin Professional Police Association Award for Valor, among other awards, for his actions in response to the shooting at the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin. Lieutenant Murphy's personal story of survival profoundly illustrates his message to law enforcement to never give up. Lieutenant Murphy earned a Master of Science degree in Criminal Justice Administration and a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice from Marion University. Please welcome my guest, Brian Murphy. Brian, so good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. So I met Brian, I, and it's interesting. I, I just met him for the first time um, just last week during the SHOT Show where he was working with a company over there. And But I had known of Brian for many, many years because he was involved in an incredible 
um, attack in Wisconsin at the Sikh temple. But before we get into that, Brian, um, let's talk a little bit about you and your career. Where did you grow up and what led you to choose law enforcement as your as your profession? Okay, so I, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, uh, New York. Uh, my entire family is law enforcement. My grandfather was a captain with NYPD. Uh, all my uncles were NYPD. And in fact, had my dad not worn glasses, uh, he would have been NYPD. But uh, at the time, he couldn't get on that department if you wore glasses. So it was kind of a strange thing. Uh, so I was raised in, in, in that environment. Uh, and I went to went to school and I didn't have enough money for college, uh, but I wanted to go on the FBI. So I, I worked demolition. I was gutting buildings in Manhattan. And uh, while it was a good job, it, it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So uh, from there, I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, and as as the Marines tend to do, I was guaranteed the MP field. And then when I graduated, they sure enough put me in the MP field. So I worked in the brig. I didn't actually, <laughs> I was actually an MP. Uh, so I, I did that for uh, for a year. And then I applied for uh, duty as a Marine security guard. So I, I worked in embassies throughout the world. I was in Afghanistan uh, when the Russians were there uh, from 82 to 83. Uh, and then I, I served in Bangkok, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and uh, did a little bit of time in New Delhi, India, uh, before I, I came home. I was overseas. I was funny, my daughter was looking for a scholarship for college for uh, kids and Marines, and I had to pull out my, my discharge papers. And I was overseas for three years, three months, three days. <laughs> uh, before I finally came home and then uh, yeah, I remember talking to my dad and he was like you know what you've been away for a long time you should you should take some time off and, and that uh, lasted two weeks and then I got the job at the UN and uh, that that was a great job it, it really T was tell me, to, tell me what you did at the UN so at the UN I did a lot of jobs at the UN I did uh, I worked at the Secretary General's residence I was on protective details for every visiting head of state. So I remember meeting uh, Maggie Thatcher, Corzine Aquino, Brian Mulroney from Canada, uh, uh, Gorbachev, uh, a whole bunch of them. I was an armorer for a while. I worked in the control center. Uh, but the, the different thing about the UN is uh, it, it's on First Avenue, and it goes from 42nd to 47th Street, but nobody else is allowed on the property. NYPD, FBI, nobody can come on the property. It's almost like a sovereign nation. Uh, at the time, we had about 250 security officers. Now, uh, I've, I've been there since. Uh, they had me come in, do a talk uh, a bunch of years ago, and they're up to about 400. And now it's very high speed, very high tech, a uh, bunch of dogs, bomb dogs, stuff like that. But it was it was a good job because you work with guys from all over the world. You know, it's uh, lunchtime in and of itself was a was a trip. You know, you you go down there with a 
with a sandwich and that dude from Iceland open up his lunchbox and he'd have a boiled sheep's head in there. <laughs> yeah, one of the other guys from Africa is eating elephant meat and you're just like, this is it's the weirdest thing I've ever been around. But it's uh, it's good just to see how other people think, what other people do, uh, and even the notion of who we think we are and how we're recognized throughout the world uh, when I speak to just the way Americans are and how they're viewed. It's uh, some have a great view of us and others not as much. So you, how long did you work for the United Nations? A uh, little over five years. I, I, I married my first wife and my daughter was born. I was living out in, uh, in Queens and I had three cars stolen in a year <laughs> and a guy who lived in my apartment building got shot. Uh, and my ex-wife was like, yeah, we should probably find somewhere else to go. She had family out in Wisconsin, uh, and one of my best friends from the service, uh, I had visited him in the summer in Wisconsin, which is beautiful. Uh, and then we moved out, and I didn't realize winter lasts like six months here. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, I came out, worked out in Jefferson, uh, worked in the jail, got certified as a uh, as a law enforcement officer, and then I was there for just about a year when the job at Oak Creek came up and I was, I was happy to go and Oak Creek was uh, very forward thinking, very, we trained like nobody's business. I mean, they still do. They're, every officer gets a minimum of eight hours of training a month. Wow, that's, okay, so let's talk about Oak Creek. Tell, tell me about the community. How big was the department? So when I started in 92, there were 14,000 people. We boarded the city of Milwaukee to the south, 28 square miles. And then by the time I left in 2013, we had tripled in size, so we were up to 35,000. But we're, we're a high traffic volume. Uh, we have an interstate go through. We're right next to the airport. We have two separate railroads that go through. So during the day, you may get you know, half a million people travel through the city. Uh, and it, it's funny, you talk, to, you talk to people who were in that, uh, law enforcement guys in that same business, while, while you look at it from the outside and you go, oh yeah, Oak Creek's really small, but when you look at the volume of people traveling through there all the time, it's actually substantial. Okay. Uh, at the time, yep. No, what, what was the, what number of officers uh, were in service there? <laughs> Are you ready? So when I started at 14,000, we had yeah. 58. And then when wow. I left, we had 58. That's it. So we tripled in size. Our calls for service went up 500% and never had a single officer. Not one. It was insane. So, the, now, the, so the work volume <laughs> went up exponentially and no, no, no more personnel. Nope. Nope, we stayed at fifty-eight my whole career. So you were you so, were you were a busy police department. We were we were we were usually hopping, and in a in a eight-year period, and, and most people never heard of Oak Creek, uh, but in an eight-year period, uh, I had been to two active shooters. Wow! Uh, and, and you know when you say they like what? And uh, yeah, there were two. One was Sea uh, Temple was planned, and the original one, the first one was. Uh, I just call them spontaneous. Uh, it wasn't meant to be, it was an unplanned thing. Uh, and, and 
that's where we learned we learned a tremendous amount after the fact on things that we should have been doing we had asked for and unfortunately like most most agencies you you really don't get things done until after there's an incident and after sure. you realize all these things we needed we told you we needed I, we asked for a Thames unit, right? We was on one of the founding guys on SWAT, and back in 2002, we asked for a tactical med unit, and uh, the city and the fire department both told us no. And then we have the first shooting, and we got guys down. It's in the third floor of a, a local hotel. Drug dealer gets all mad at his girlfriend, shoots her in the head. Uh, the guy at the room across the hall, he comes out, kills him. He's walking up the hall with a Mac-10 and a 38, just dusting people. And our guy just happened to be there 30 seconds after this thing jumps. And he calls for the meds, and the meds like, you got to bring him down. And and right after that, two weeks after that, we got a Thames unit. But, you know, it would have been much more beneficial to have him when we needed him. Sure, and of course, it's the that's the typical reaction, you know, when uh, when when everything bad happens, that's when the uh, the the powers that be actually make the move, right? Absolutely, it's a, and it's always like we've been asking, like, no, you haven't asked for boo, we we have it on paper. Two years ago, we wanted this, and we gave all our justifications, and it's one of those things, and you understand it's when you when you say these things could happen. Because they haven't, then it's it's almost like non-existent. Right, right. And you know, you, it, like you, I, I mean, I I go around the country and you talk about it, and you, you try to explain to administrations, both in law enforcement and the private sector, especially in, like for me, I do a lot of uh, school stuff, and you, they, they, to say it's not going to happen here is one of the the worst things you can ever say. Yeah, and I'm sure you get that a lot. Well, before we go into, I want to talk about the Sikh shooting, of course. But, sure. um, but uh, in your in your 22 years, tell me about the assignments that you had, and uh, which was your favorite assignment? So I, I did patrol for a long time. I was uh, drugs. I worked dope for about 10 years. I worked. I, I was on a SWAT team for 18 uh, warrants. <laughs> I did Homeland Security. I was the emergency management guy for the city. I uh, did just about everything. I was an agitator for the K-9 unit. Uh, I, what, I, what I learned in my career was every time I was turned down from a promotion, I would always ask, all right, what can I do better? What, what, do, you, what do you need me to do? Till, uh, so I would, I would take on another assignment. And uh, eventually it was just kind of like, all right, we have no more reasons to say no to you. So I just kept, I just kept that, and I wanted to be as well-rounded as I could. My my kid brothers at the time he worked for NYPD, and we we had a, a big discussion on the ability of a smaller town or a smaller city agency officer versus a large city. And, and my take was, I can do everything. I was in charge of the criminal investigation unit, so I was a CSI. So even on that first active shooter, I was SWAT team. After I actually cuffed the guy, we transported him, cleared the building, and then took off my gear, and then I had to process the scene. Wow. For the next 18 hours. Yeah. So my, my skill set, while I'm not a master of anything, 
my my skill set is higher because there's nobody else there to do it. That's interesting. You know, I I I started my career in a small town of 30 police officers, and uh, once again, we didn't have you, you, there was no CSI. You know that it, it it fell to you to take care of those things, and uh, and I, I I too felt like I actually enjoyed you know the ability to do everything and i thought that was i because when i when i went to las vegas pd um you know your patrol you're a patrol that's what you do and you don't right. do any of the other stuff if you, if you want to be a detective then you go be a detective so it was a, it, it is an interesting dichotomy from a from a big city to a smaller community but you still saw a lot of action in a in a in a town that that had 17,000 people in it that's amazing um, so yep. so uh, let's talk about um, the the life-changing moment where so I, I want I want the audience to know that you have a a particular um, uh, I don't know if the word is honor but you have a particular uh, uh, set of set of circumstances that has created um, the the ability for you to positively claim that you are the most shot police officer to survive and that that is that is an astounding um, that is an astounding story, and I want you to tell us about that moment. I know that that recounting um, this type of of traumatic situation can can be hard sometimes. So uh, take your time and and let's let's talk about the uh, the Sikh shooting. Okay, so uh, August fifth, two thousand twelve. It's my off day. Uh, I had two sergeants. One sergeant was away on vacation and the other sergeant, his son was graduating from ROTC and he asked me to switch days with them, which we, we do all the time. And I'm a, I, I was going on my honeymoon in eight days from that. Oh boy. So I go in, I got seven guys working, which it doesn't set for a lot of places. Seven doesn't mean anything, but seven was actually a lot for us for a Sunday morning, weather was gorgeous. Uh, and again, usually guys take off when the weather's nicer because the winters last so long. So I got seven guys, but I had gotten a, a memo from the, the, the captain telling me I need to get my guys trained up on some uh, administrative work, uh, just videos and stuff they had to watch. So I, I talked to my guys in the morning and I said, all right, you four stay in. Uh, write a roll call, get your training done. The other three go on the road, I'll go out with you. Uh, and, and so we go out and that's at 10.26 was the first call. It was a 911 call. Uh, and the first dispatch to us was a possible fight. So we start heading there, and in Oak Creek, when there's a, a hot call or a, a, one where there was a propensity for violence, then everybody would go. But everybody would go by seniority, same way they were coming from. So as dispatch is going on, I'm listening to where everybody else is coming from, and I realize I'm probably gonna be first uh, or very close second to uh, another officer named Sam Lenda. So as I'm, as I'm heading up, uh, then the call gets upgraded to possible shots, and then it gets upgraded again to shots fired. Uh, 
Now, to preface this, there had been a fight about five, six months earlier uh, at the temple between two, uh, for lack of a better term, two parishioners. Uh, and it had gotten very heated, and there was a baseball bat and a knife. And so because we don't ever get a lot of calls for service there, that was my first inkling was, all right, this is between those same two guys. Uh, and nowhere in any of the dispatch to us did we get even an inkling that this could be an active shooter situation. Okay, before you go on, unfortunately, I have to take a hard break, and then we'll come back and we'll get into the meat of the story. Sounds good. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop. That's AmericaOutloud.shop and use coupon code out loud. Use CoFixRx because it works. Asia believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel and be our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them. From improving immune health, regulating hormone balance, supporting gut health, to soothing the skin, even reducing the appearance of wrinkles, fine lines, and cellulite and providing targeted support for mind, mood, energy, and even our body's own production of collagen. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in becoming your best self and fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. A suppression of truth in a world of darkness, void of any soul, requires that we are rightly informed, properly equipped, and strongly motivated to fight the corruption. AmericaOutloud.news is that place to awaken your heart, soul, and mind to the Outloud truth. Now is our time. 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to One Nation coffee.com order your coffee and uh you'll get great coffee and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue so uh go to onenationcoffee.com All right, let's bring Brian back in. All right, Brian, so just just to remind the audience, so uh, you're a sergeant now. Lieutenant. You're, lieutenant now. Oh, you, you were a field yep. lieutenant. Okay, gotcha. Yep. And you get a call, and it now it turns into you're now getting your reports that it's an active shooter at the Sikh temple in your community. Right. So from the time I get the call till the time... Uh, I get there, it's one minute and 59 seconds. So, as I said, as it's, uh, as the call's evolving, it's going from uh, fight, possible shots, then definite shots. So as I, where the temple is located, it's right off uh, state highway, uh, four lane highway, but uh, from the topography, you can't see, you can't even see the roof of the temple from the roadway. So there's only one one way in, one way out. So I, I head up the drive, uh, it, it goes up, and once I, I hit the peak, I'm scanning, I don't hear anything. Uh, and directly, uh, let's let's go 11 o'clock, uh, looks like there's one person down. So I, I drive up, get within, I don't know, maybe 15 feet of the person, jump out of the car, uh, have my sidearm out. Uh, I look and see it's easy to see this person's deceased. Uh, and I call it out on the radio. I have one down. I send the ambulance and I tell my guys just come right behind me. Uh, what I didn't know was actually two people. So they were brothers uh, and they had gotten out of the car. Bad guy was on the south side a lot. This is the north side a lot. Uh, they see him walking. The one brother actually raises his hand and invites the bad guy in for tea. Gun comes out. The brother who was on the passenger side runs around, tries to protect his older brother. Uh, bad guy comes up and he shoots them both. Uh, but because they were priests at the temple at the time, they were wearing robes. So I just saw one head and one set of appendages. Uh, and that was the brother just had kind of covered up uh, his younger brother trying to protect them. Uh, which again is neither here nor there. 
So as soon as I get down uh, done with that that radio broadcast, I look up and somebody comes out of the front of the temple, uh, white guy, and he starts jogging to his left, my right. It's about 45 yards or so. Uh, I can't see anything in his hands at the time. And you, you got to remember, we're in a parking lot. So with vehicles being there, I can I can see his head the whole time, but I can't see his body uh, right up until the gun comes up. So I, I, I know I don't have a reason to shoot him. I don't see anything. If, in fact, there was a shooting, somebody running away from there wouldn't have been that odd. But I know I have enough to at least stop him and, and talk to him. So I yell, police stop, and then all of a sudden, and this is what kills me. It, it well, <coughs> actually, figuratively in reality, he's running away from me, does one target glance, turns his head back, arm comes up, I'm moving. It's a 42-yard shot, and he hits me right in the face. It hits in my chin, uh, the bullet. Uh, hits the jawbone, goes down, uh, rips everything up, bounces off my spine, and it's it's uh, it's right here, just two millimeters by my carotid artery. So uh, I felt like a punch uh, is the best way I can describe it. Just felt like a really good solid punch. So there's a car there. I uh, get behind the car, check myself quick. And, and honestly, I, I, I didn't feel that bad, uh, but I started looking for feet. And, and because we had both fired, uh, and you know this to be true as well, but we're carrying HK USP 45. So once you shoot your 45 without hearing protection on, your, your hearing pretty much goes out the window. So I'm, I'm looking for feet. Uh, I don't see any, he's still firing. So remember that he's running to my right, so that's where I'm focusing. He didn't come out and look around. He came out with purpose and was going that way. So that's where I'm, I'm looking the most. Uh, and I'm behind the X. I know I'm behind the X, for, or you're on the X for like 10, 12 seconds. And I don't feel comfortable where I am. So I, I stepped to the front of the car. I have both hands out, you know, weapon, weapon up at high ready, and. What had happened was after he had shot, he had taken like two, three steps, and then he had come all the way back. Uh, he had a bunch of army training. He had done a bunch of CQB work. He was a bodyguard and some other stuff. So when I come up now, he's he's at my seven, and he shoots the gun out of my hand. Uh, takes my thumb off. Gun goes flying. And, and I'm looking at my thumb, and it's it's just spurting. I can see the bone at the end of it. And all I can think in my head is, man, it's going to leave a mark. Like in the, in the middle of this, in the middle of and I've talked to other guys who have been in the same position, and, and the idea that you have these intrusive thoughts is not, uh, it's not extraordinary. It happens a lot. So I'm not going to bore you with the, the, the rest. He's, he's lighting me up. He's lighting me up. Uh, and you're, you're and not you're not boring you're not boring me. I trust me on this. <laughs> okay, so he he hits me in the upper arm, hits me. Uh, how close? Are, how close? How close are you to, to him? Ten, twelve feet. Okay, so it's a it's a really close up gunfight. Yeah, he's been, and I want to say gunfight, but the fact of the matter is, after I took that first shot, 
Uh, and then he shot the gun out of my hand. That was the end of my fight as far as having a gun. That didn't stop me, but it just, that part. But so anyway, he's lighting me up. And, and well, again, we're in the parking lot. I know my backup is either there or should be almost there. And so I, I hit this car there, I go into the car, and I hit my shrimp. And uh, I, I'm sure you have as well. I, 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 I like being on the ground. I like fighting on the ground. I got the wingspan of a freaking four-year-old, so the ground <laughs> is a good place for me. So I, I shrimp up, stick my vest out, and he walks by, boom, 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 hits me a couple of times, and then there's nothing. There's no noise. There's this one moment of clarity and silence. And I close my eyes for a second, take a deep breath. And and we have been in our trainings since 92. We had practiced uh, box breathing. They call it seal breathing, combat breathing, whatever you want to call it. Four in, hole, four out, hole. And that was all I could get. My head was, all right, let's, let's knock it down a notch, get control of this. But as soon as I close my eyes, I see my wife Ann's face in my head. And as soon as I see Ann, I think of my wife and my kids. And I think, there's no way on hell, and hell, I'm, I'm dying on a goddamn parking lot. So I'm thinking, all right, I got to get back to my squad. Once I get to my squad, then I'm just going to run them over. So I, I come out from underneath the car with this absolutely drained him, you know, but instilled, I got to get there, I got to get there. Well, what had happened was as he goes by, he shoots bang, 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 and then he runs out of ammo. Now, in my head, I'm under the car for, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, and wherever he was originally running, he's probably there. Unfortunately, that was not the case, so when I roll out, he had just come by, bang, 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 click, so he's out of battery, he drops his mag, fishing around for another mag, up it comes, and now it's on. So I'm looking at him, this is about, again, eight, 10 feet away, and I'm looking at him straight in the face, and there's nothing. He's not emotional, he's not yelling, he's not upset, he could have had a ham sandwich in the other hand. He's just, the only thing that I thought was odd in hindsight is he stayed with one hand. Uh, and and he just starts firing. And in my head, I'm like, it doesn't matter what happens. I'm getting back to the car. I'm going to freaking kill you. And that's going to be that. And and as I'm going back, it's it, it's the weirdest feeling. You're you're looking at somebody who's looking to end your life. And I, and I thought to myself, man, if this is going to be it, if this is going to be my time, I, I can't go out. I, I can't go out begging. I can't go out. That That's just not me. So I, I, just as I'm going, I'm getting madder and madder, and I'm thinking, when are you going to be done shooting me? Because you, you're just lighting me up a lot. I, and I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm not moving fast enough. I'm on my ass, and I'm pushing back your know, hands and heel. So I, I, I flip over. I'm going to, you know, I, like I said, I was in the Marines for a long time. I'm a low crawl, but I'm getting back to my car. So I keep shooting a couple more, go through my arm, and then the shot comes. And the shot is, so he's 6'4". He's shooting down on this angle of eight to 10 feet, and it hits just above my epaulet, and it skims through my vest. So you, you, you know your vest is made up of layers of material, Kevlar, Twaron, it doesn't matter. But because of the angle, it's like a, a rock in a lake. 
it just skims through and that goes into the back of my head. So I, I still have the round in the back of my skull and that one pancakes me. And it's, it's so loud and it's so blinding. And, and that's the only time in all this that I thought, man, I'm, I'm in for, I'm in a little bit of trouble right now. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm just face first on the ground. And what I didn't know was that my backup was already there. So Sam had come in, uh, he's trying to call me on the radio. He's saying I can hear sounds of shots. And the sound, him hearing the sounds of shots is, is that guy trying to kill me. Uh, and eventually, a uh, bad guy leaves me. He goes up on Sam, and and you talk about you know how how lucky sometimes it can be. So Sam is going to get his, uh, his squad rifle out, and as he does, the the sling gets caught on the laptop. He bends down. Bad guy shoots ninety yards. He's carrying a Springfield XD nine mil. Puts a round through the windshield. It would have hit him right in the throat. And because of the angle, it would have went under and probably through his brainstem. But because the sling got caught, that didn't happen. Sam comes up uh, and it, it hits him, cuts him basically sideways, goes right through him. Uh, he would have bled out, but... Uh, Wait a minute, you, he, you lost me. Did the officer was shot? No, Sam shoots the bad guy. Okay. So okay. the round bad guy shoots, puts the round through the headrest, but Sam isn't hit. He comes out, comes up on the A post. Uh, six times he shoots, <clears throat> hits the bad guy once. Uh, bad guy goes down, and then the bad guy takes his gun and just ends it and kills himself. Uh, so um, <laughs> it's it's funny. I I, I get I, I I shake it off. And I drag myself out to the back of the car. Uh, and it's the God's honest truth, man. I'm sitting there and I'm looking at myself and I'm like, man, my wife's going to kill me. <laughs> we're, we're supposed to go on our honeymoon in eight days. I'm like, she's going to be so mad. And uh, so then Sam come up, Mike Schultz, uh, and, and they pick me up. But in my head, I'm like, they already killed that one guy outside unbeknownst to me was two i can't imagine what went on inside that building so when it came to pick me up i waved them off and i'm like you gotta go in you gotta go in and and mike who i had just been working out with uh he was he saw i was a mess he picked me up and drove me in the back of my squad i i gave him a description of the shooter and where i was shot and then they uh they took me off to which is a level one trauma center about uh, 15 minutes away. Tell inside, me. inside he had killed six, uh, shot four. Subsequently, uh, Baba Punjab Singh died of his injuries. So seven people died and another, another three were injured that day. Wow. What was his motivation? So uh, he belonged to the uh, Hammerskins. He was a uh, you know, white supremacist. And he was dating a girl from another local neighborhood, a uh, local city by us. She was a white supremacist. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> they get in a big fight. And 
the girl finds a picture of the bad guy. He was originally stationed in North Carolina, and during that time, he had dated an American Indian girl. So this girl sees the picture of him and the American Indian girl. She calls down to Northern Hammerskins in Chicago, tell him he's full of he's full of beans. You got to kick him out and all this. So they have a meeting with him on June thirtieth, and they tell him they're going to vet a new member, but. Uh, they're not going to physically beat him up, but they kick him out. And that's what the impetus was for uh, him doing anything. He drops off the grid completely, uh, doesn't go to work, doesn't talk to anybody, sells his stuff. Uh, why he picked the temple, his ex-girlfriend worked at the diner down the block. And he used to go to the diner and meet her and right next to the diner was a liquor store and that was owned by a Sikh gentleman so that's that there's a lot of conjecture nobody knows for sure why yeah. he picked it uh but he had been there he knew what he was doing he planned it he went on the tuesday before they invited him in they took him all around the building he came back thursday evening they brought him in came all around the building you know they had no security no cameras so he did no a complete anything. he did a complete recon and 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 planned this event so you ever see that thing from weston and calhoun on the uh the uh it's like a stair step to violence uh been an active shooters there's that there's an actual progression ideology grievance idea he's like the perfect storm for this he does the pre-plan he does everything exactly the way they said it was going to happen okay so let, i, I want to get back to you all right he's a piece of piece of garbage he's dead good happy ending you're shot how many times 15. 15 times yeah i got uh, three hit the vest and then 12 in me <laughs> That's un that's unbelievable, and and including two in the one in the face and one in the head. Yeah, I still and I still have those that they still, couldn't oh, take oh. them out. So I, I still have. I got How? a lot of shrapnel in me. I they it's funny. I went to get an MRI. I hurt my knee, and uh, they couldn't give me an MRI because I got too much <laughs> too, too much, much metal, metal in you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, how long was your physical recovery? Because you went back to work. So, no, no, I didn't. I tried to go back to work. And actually, it was funny. I was talking to uh, the kid from Fargo we were talking about earlier. He got shot uh, in July of last year. And, and I worked for the, I worked for Armor Express. So anybody kind of like you, only in our, in the vest capacity, anybody shot, stabbed, car accident, I tried to take care of him. And I, and I talked to him this morning, one of the guys, and he was talking about going back in May. And I'm like, you know, how you feel on that? And he said, well, he said, uh, physically, I'm as good as I'm going to get. And I, uh, I don't think I'll be a liability. And for me, I wanted to go back, but between my voice and my hands, uh, I knew that I would be a liability. I, and, and I've always had that mindset, like, if I can't do my job to 100%, then I shouldn't be doing my job at all. Right. Uh, and I can't, in my head, I'm like, if somebody else needed me and I'm 80%, that's not good enough because they need 100%. And again, I was older. Uh, 
I retired at 50. So, and then also I'm thinking I'm a lieutenant, so there's a lieutenant position, a sergeant position, and a new hire. So if I leave, that's three spots for people. So I was looking at the giant picture of it all. And and to be honest with you, I was in the hospital 17 days uh, between my throat and my hand and my leg, man, eight months. I mean, I still get it's. I still get Botox injections in my throat every three months. Wow! Because the scar tightens up on me, and I'll get that for the rest of my life. I, uh, but I also look at them, and I, you know, I, I get the opportunity to talk to you. I can eat. I can basically be myself. That was not, by the way, that was not absolutely not the prognosis. So my my. Otolaryngologist, which is your neck guy, he came in and he told my wife. So I had a I had a trachea tube in, I had a feeding tube in, and he explained that he goes, I'm I I don't believe in sugar coating. He said there's a very very high probability you'll never talk again, you'll never eat except through the tube, and if everything goes according to plan, you'll be able to drink. Uh, room temperature liquids on your own. And that was the wow. third day. And I remember looking at Ann, my wife, and I'm like, that's what we got. So we'll go with it. And and luckily enough, he had done such a unbelievable job putting everything back that I was fortunate enough to, obviously, to be able to talk. And uh, that took, I think they finally got the trachea tube out in like two months and and I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. When I'm in the hospital, they used to come five times a day, and they put a mask on you with camphor, and a bit like an expectorant, and then they pull the tube out and they put a vacuum in your throat, and they basically suck all this stuff out of your chest. It's like getting waterboarded. You can't oh breathe anything God. in. They're sucking this out, and it's five times a day. I used to hear that that cart coming up the hallway and I remember just, you know, that my brother stayed with me, my brother-in-law and my wife and you just look and you're like, oh man, you know, it didn't take a long time, but it just, it sucked. Oh, geez. Uh, I, you just, you just sent a shiver down my spine. And, and you know, it's funny. I did IACP uh, with the, the armor company and this, you know, guy comes up to the booth and he looked like a refrigerator with a head. He just is like <laughs> muscles had muscles. And, and we're talking and he had cancer in his mouth and had to remove a portion of his tongue. And this giant of a dude starts crying when he talked about them coming to clear the trachea tube out. Yeah. And I'm like, that's that I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Wow. So in just the few minutes that we have left, um, I mean, your, your story of survival is incredible. And, and how has it been, um, you know, post-traumatic stress we know is, is a very real thing. Did you, did you um, uh, suffer symptoms of, uh, of, of PTS? You know, I, I, I had to go uh, see the psychiatrist because it's an OIS. And so every night what I would do when I would go to bed, I, 
I would just, I wouldn't play, it's weird, I wouldn't play getting shot, I wouldn't replay that, but I would replay tactically what I could have done different to affect the outcome. And Dr. Barry had said, you know, uh, humans are creatures of habit and we need to be in control. And he, he asked, he goes, once you figure out how you could have been in control, then what happens? And I said, well, I go to sleep. And he said, do you have interrupted sleep? I'm like, no, I, I, I sleep fine. And he said, okay. He said, when that starts changing or if that starts changing, then there's a problem. And he gave me all the all the info on it. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I think because a lot has to do with my upbringing, a lot has to do with the amount of things that had transpired in my life up until that point. I, I was able to go to the place that allowed me to go, okay, this is what I have, these are my cards, how, where do we go from here? And, and that wasn't always the case. Like I, I wound up having back surgery two years prior to the shooting. I had my spine fused and I was going through a divorce and that was a mess. And and But I got through it and I think those things helped but there's never a part of you that going through something like that that you just walk away unscathed there's sure. i don't care who you are it's it's how much do you let it go and that's you know how you and i came to talk i got to talk to goody uh, you know alan goodman and we were talking about that and i said sometimes the best you could best thing you can ever do is you, you can't just let it overflow just put a cap on it for the time being, so you get your bearings, get yourself back. Now we can side vent and take the pressure off. But to try and deal with everything at once, and that's kind of kind of what I had realized is, all right, what, what do we deal with first? Do we deal with the hand first? Do we deal with the throat first, the leg? Let's pick something so I feel like I'm accomplishing something. And, and that, honestly, that first year, man, I was I was a hateful person, man. I hated what had happened to me. I hated what my life was possibly going to become, and I was angry. So from that, and people lose sight of that. Sometimes that the PTS is just that. You're just right. you're just mad. You know why me? What did I do? How come I'm the guy who got picked? It's my freaking off day. I shouldn't have ever been there. And then you come to realize, you know what? I was there for a reason. Yeah, and and and, and I'll, I'll give you the the part of the story that makes the most sense to me. A year after the shooting, uh, the temple holds a six k race uh, for the people who had died, and it's the first time I, I had been around everybody from the temple all at once. This little tiny woman comes up, and she goes, "Oh, Lieutenant, you're my hero." And I go, "Absolutely not." And if you ever hear the whole thing about Mr. Kalika and what he did, I'm like, "Mr. Kalika was the hero," and she goes, "No, no, no." The bad guy had trapped all these people in a pantry when I came in. So when, as he's going around to the pantry, he sees my car, leaves those people alone, and he comes out, right? So I told you that she's saying I was in a pantry. And mm. I'm like, oh, man, I'm mad, Mike. I'm glad you're here. And she said, do you know how many people were in the pantry? I said, no, ma'am, absolutely not. She goes, there was 15 one-minute children. Wow. And I'm like, oh, so the, my goodness. So the reality that you probably saved those 15 people is really and the woman says here's the ticker right he goes she said how many times did you get shot and i said 15. she goes there was exactly 15 oh, people in man. that room that's in that's See, another, exactly when she right. told me that i got goosebumps i, I you know yeah, you don't know what to do when you realize you know what 
I'm here for a reason. If, if nothing else, like you to talk to people and say, you know what? Bad stuff happens. We don't get to pick when bad stuff happens and picks us. It's what we do with that afterwards, how we how we can help each other, how we can deal with each other. You know, like I talked to Alan, I talked to that kid from Fargo. I'm like, I don't belong to you. I don't belong to your agency. I'm an outside entity. I have nothing vested. But what I have is the, some of an experience of doing something that can help you. Right. So day or and night, give me a holler and I'll help you. Well, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to be on the Wounded Blue Hour with me. Fascinating conversation, and I look forward to getting together with you again soon. So uh, you take care, and, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for having me. It's a true honor. And everybody listening to this, be safe, protect your family, protect yourself, and be happy. In the end, just be happy. Amen to that. So... Another fascinating show. Um, thank you for being here today. And uh, remember, thewoundedblue.org is here to help.